Welcome to our new episode of our Cab Chat podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Scott Coleman. He's currently Assistant Professor of Biopsychology at the University of Texas at Arlington, and he's also the President of the Texas Hawking Association, which is the second largest state falconry club with about 400 members. And we also have Dr. Mindy Waite, as per normal. Hi, guys. Um, so welcome. And welcome, Scott. Um, I know we haven't had you on the show before, but I know you and you and Jessica know each other. Is that right? Yes. Friends and colleagues and uh, co-conspirators in animal behavior. We uh, both graduated from University of Texas at Arlington, and uh, we were in the animal behavior program. So uh, we go a ways back. Scott, it looks like you are very much into the the birds, but have you done, before we get into like all the birding work that you do, have, have you worked with more species than birds, it sounds like? Yeah. Um, I mean, I go way back with the interest in animal training um, in terms of academic studies. I focus mostly on birds. In our lab, uh, we range from reptiles. Uh, I think we even had invertebrates for a while. Um, of course, you know, we had typical rats. And, and, and mice. And uh, when I came in, part of the thing was, is I wanted to start a, a zebra finch colony and do work on zebra finches because as sort of a, a hobbyist, as uh, a young person, I had raised and sort of studied on my own here. And I thought they'd be an ideal uh, subject for animal behavior research. So I kind of made the deal with uh, our major professor, Roger Milgren. Hey, I'll come to UTA if I can set up a, a, a bird lab. And he said, yes. It sounds like you took that bird lab and you, you've really run with it and you've sort of made a career out of that both from like the academic perspective but also from the sporting perspective would that be accurate yeah i um i had a a, a pre-existing interest in in uh falconry because uh i'm sort of an average you know texas boy i grew up horseback riding and uh and hunting uh, but i also had a, a major interest in animal behavior from you know i guess uh, my mother bought me a, a, a time life series uh book for youth uh, on animal behavior so i read that book maybe i don't know, 12 years old. And, and uh, it had, it covered the research from everyone from Nico Tinberg and Conrad Lorenz to uh, Skinner, uh, Frank Beach uh, and others. And so I learned about that at a young age. And so I knew I was fascinated with animal behavior. And uh, all I wanted was the chance to explore as many options as I could. And um, with animal behavior, um, I, as a, a high school student, joined a uh, explorer post, which is you know part of the Boy Scouts of America. But it was uh, the post worked at the Fort Worth Zoo. So I spent my entire high school career volunteering uh, at the Fort Worth Zoo. And uh, there I worked with birds and I got my first taste of, of working with uh, birds of prey and learning about them and uh, began reading about uh, their behavior. And so I wanted to become a falcon uh, early on, but it's a very difficult sport to get into. And uh, so I put it on hold uh, and pursued other interests such as dog training, uh, training horses and things like that. And then got into academia and then I, I went back to birds of prey uh, and falconry uh, when I was uh, in graduate school. Could you just tell us a little bit about like, what is it? 
Um, well, it's a, a sort of a, a field sport, uh, and it's uh, has an ancient history to it. Uh, they estimate it is about four thousand years old. At least they can document, uh, you know, back to over three thousand years ago. Uh, it's a form of hunting where you use uh, trained wild raptors quarry in its natural habitat. So uh, I think when I explain it to somebody, I say it's probably the most inefficient way to, uh, you know. <laughs> take game but it's the most one of the most fascinating ways to to do it so the the object isn't really to um anything other than sort of an advanced form of bird watching i think that's one way to sort of to frame it but uh it is you know the purpose is to hunt uh but uh the falconer you know basically sets the occasion and and uh, uh you know utilizes the uh, instincts of the uh, of the raptor uh to to hunt and, and it varies depending on what you hunt and the type of bird that you use and so it's it's has an illustrious history because uh it's known as the sport of kings so nobility have you know had flocked to it uh back in the medieval times and uh, uh i guess falconry sort of faded away uh, about the time that you know guns were being introduced and then it returned sort of uh, for nostalgic reasons and um, so uh, you know United States has sort of really uh, you know been very innovative in development of modern falconry techniques and so you know I kind of view uh, what we do uh, is sort of like a you know a modern an ancient sport in a, a modern uh, context so I don't know if that's the yeah. complete description of what it is uh, it's basically you're going to go out in the field and you're going to take your bird and your dog as I do and going to spend as much time as you can you know uh, chasing uh, whatever you're you're going for and, and hoping for the best um, I would describe the activity of falconry as something where you don't have a lot of control it's sort of a dynamic experience uh, if you want control you're not going to have of course um, there's interaction with the quarry that you're going after but there's also wild raptors and uh, other things that can kind of uh, change the outcome you know your expectation is probably going to violate it in some way because uh, you're thinking oh i'm going to catch this uh bunny rabbit with my hawk and then next thing you know here comes a great horned owl or you know something else and, and totally disrupts what your plans are or your bird flies away and you have to recover it several hours later so um you have to be willing to be flexible and, and devote a lot of time to it but the rewards are are, are great if you uh, if you you know are successful at, at becoming a falconer and I, I would add i mean i think that's a great some especially when you said it's kind of like advanced bird watching um i did have a chance to go hunting with scott one time and it was probably one of the most memorable experiences out there with actually interacting with animals i thought it was it was amazing to see how dogs were lining things up you, you lost sight of up high but scott was like oh no he's close close fine <laughs> and uh unfortunately scott put me in charge of of holding the dog and i was just like oh i let it go just up the whole thing but um, you know, it is it is a fascinating sport. It really is. And, and I think my biggest fascination is how you get multiple predatory species to work together to help you capture whatever prey you're looking for. And I guess, I guess my question is, is some of the decided prey up the actual falcon or hawk that you're flying? Or are you are you telling your bird what you're looking for? Well, um, let's see the best way to say it. You know, if you have, I guess I can describe, you know, 
know, what I do, which is I fly uh, peregrine falcons and I normally pursue ducks and, and uh, waterfowl. And so, uh, you know, the, they learn, uh, the falcons learn that, uh, you know, what you're going for just by repetition. Um, and so, you know, for example, a duck will be sitting on the, what we call in Texas, a, a stock tank. Um, and uh, you let the falcon go and the falcon flies above the tank uh, and sort of sets the ducks. The ducks know they're safe by staying on the water and then sort of creep up. Um, and then uh, I, uh, like Jessica said, I use a dog uh, to help uh, flush the uh, the ducks off the water because they're reluctant to go. And you can yell and scream and they'll, the ducks will look at you like, we're not moving. And it takes uh, a little more incentive for them to go. And so so the falcons want to uh, chase a duck uh, and uh, and catch a duck and eat it. And they sort of, uh, we call it being wedded to the prey so or, or entering uh, the falcon to the prey. So they learn what you're going for. And then they become very specialized uh, with practice. So um, at first, uh, you know, falconry has lots of terms and so forth that's um, uh, to describe different, you know, um, you know training processes and, and hunting processes. But we call it check. Uh, you know, you may be setting up the, uh, the duck hunt, as I described, and here comes a, a dove casually flying by. And the falcon goes, well, I think I'm going to forget the duck and go for dove. And, uh, and you know, that ruins the whole um, uh, flight for that, you know, for that moment. But uh, with repeated experience, the falcons become, like I said, become specialized and focused in on exactly what you want them to do. Uh, and uh, they learn um, that, for example, that the, the dog is uh, going to flush the quarry and they will, uh, you know, direct their attention to what the dog is doing more so than what the falconer is doing. Although, uh, you know, the falconer sort of, like I said, assess the occasion by, you know, making sure the falcon is in the right position and the dog is in the right position. And then, you know, there are certain sorts of strategies that you uh, pursue to, you know, enhance the the hunt. But it all goes out the out the door uh, the second the, uh, you know, you, know, you try to, to, you know, release the dog or flush the ducks because the ducks are going to do what they do to, to avoid being caught. And uh, so it's, it's it, you know, like I said, it's a sort of a dynamical situation. You try to, you try your best and if it works that's great and many times i've taken people out and it works and they go oh that was easy and then have to, <laughs> you know explain to them that it took months and years or whatever uh to set that up you know in order that to happen and, and in fact there's kind of a neat quote uh in um uh in a book uh the uh the um oh now i'm blanking on the uh, author's name um but uh, uh it will come back to me here a little bit but uh, basically what it says what what a, an average hunter can do with you know a, a gun and a cartridge uh, is is really nothing compared to what a falconer has to do in terms of, of uh, training the dog and training the falcon, uh, you know, maintaining the the bond and relationship. Uh, it's, uh, Aldo Leopold uh, is the is the author, uh, a great sort of environmentalist. So uh, so it's it is quite fascinating, and there's it's just uh, an addictive sort of uh, process to be involved in all that dynamic that, that takes place. So can you talk a little bit about where you get the bird? And yeah, how long how long it takes? These aren't things pick up pets. Yeah, so no, yeah. So um, uh, falconry is a, a legitimate field sport and it's regulated. We're probably the, perhaps the most regulated uh, activity out there in terms of hunting and fishing. Um, there's uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act protects all non-game species, all migratory species. So uh, raptors fall into that category. So um, and this treaty came to be in, in the early 70s. And then under the sort of, of uh, um, restrictions of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, falconry regulations were developed and uh, they were developed um, by falconers and falconers uh, basically wanted 
a lot of troll over, you know, where birds uh, uh, were and how birds were taken from the wild or from captive breeding uh, and then how they were maintained in captivity and so forth. So in falconry, you have an apprentice um, system. Uh, you have to pass examinations and you have to maintain uh, certain sorts of facilities and, and uh, uh, materials and, and things like that. So um, under the apprentice system, uh, you start off with uh, a wild taken uh, species of raptor. Generally, it's two types. It's either a, a red-tailed hawk kestrel. Um, and kestrels are actually um, a little more difficult to manage and maintain because of their size and, and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of need a lot of attention. Red tails are very durable and easy to train. And, and uh, um, you take them as a, what we call a passage, a juvenile state. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you train them and you hunt with them. And at the end of the year, uh, typically what you do is you release that bird. Um, after you are done with your apprenticeship, uh, you can continue to take birds from the wild, but have more options, species that you that you can uh, take, uh, or you can purchase birds uh, from captive breeders. Um, and so there's advantages and disadvantages of, of uh, a wild bird and, and captive bred bird. Of course, the wild birds are tend to be a little better at hunting right off the bat um, because they've, uh, they've survived, but uh, that means you have to spend a lot of time and effort trying to uh, uh, find one and uh, successfully catch one, which can be very challenging. Um, uh, a captive bred bird, you know, there are a few breeders around and you could purchase one, but uh, uh, their behavior is remarkably different. Um, sometimes they don't have the same developed hunting abilities, and so you have to spend a lot of time going through the fundamentals that a bird would have learned uh, from their parents or they've learned in the wild on their own uh and so uh but because you purchase them and they've been around people sometimes they're a little easier to manage not always um than say a bird that was taken from the wild that might be extremely uh you know uh, uh fearful at first so so if you take a bird from the wild you only get to work with it for a year or that was my that next change? question too jessica well, the same you, could, you can keep the bird if you wish um the the thing is is um uh you you know uh, you have to feed them special diets, and uh, and the diets are generally uh, fairly expensive. You know, I uh, I feed my falcons quail, which is sort of a staple diet, and it's especially uh, raised quail on a special diet. You know, use peregrine fund diet. You know, which is the health sort of thing, and so you end up spending a lot of money on that. Uh, so just imagine if you you know had to maintain a bird over the summer months when you're not hunting them, uh, they're molting their feathers, and there's no you know we follow the game seasons and so forth, which are generally fall and winter. Um, so imagine. Imagine if you uh, can sort of go full circle, you take a bird from the wild when it's young and perhaps vulnerable, uh, train it, hunt it, teach it to be a successful hunter, and then release it in the spring. Uh, and then you have, you don't have to worry about feeding it or the expense of caring for it. Uh, and uh, the next year you come around and you do the same thing over and over again. That's been, you know, historically, you know, traditionally throughout the eons, how falconry was done, um, you know. Uh, but if you have an especially nice bird, you know, I, when Jessica and I were in grad school together, I had a uh, a red tail named Sadie I kept for seven years until she flew off with another male red tail one spring day and I never saw her again uh, but uh, uh, you know it was time for her to you know uh, to find a mate and uh, you know her instinct to, to uh, you know breed was stronger than uh, staying with me and to, to hunt at that time so um, you can keep a bird a captive bred bird you can't release uh, you know by by law sometimes you lose them and they will they will survive on their own and you, if you know there's been cases where people have recaptured a bird you know, a year later for example uh, that was a captive bred bird they lost and, and uh, you know it ended up showing up somewhere or sometimes they maintain 
maintain their their, their friendliness uh, toward humans, even if they've been uh, you know on their own for for quite a while. So I have some questions about like the training that you're talking about with these birds. And I'm sure there's no way you can describe it in the time that we have on this podcast. But but can you just talk about some of like the the things that you have to train these birds once you once you get them? Well, um, if you know, even if you take one uh, out of a captive breeding project, it, it needs to be handled, uh, or you take one from the wild, it, they need to be handled. And there's some fascinating sort of uh, examples of, of uh, you know, how you know traditional falconry use uh, tames a bird. They call it manning a bird, which is sort of the first step um, that sort of parallel, you know, what uh, uh, sort of uh, behaviors might might encounter. Uh, there's examples of sort of flooding or systematic desization uh, methods that were sort of, you know, unbeknownst to the traditional falconer that they sort of utilized. Um, so what you basically have to do is, is uh, you know, we leash the birds up and uh, so we don't let them fly around in a cage, which could be damaging to their feathers. And we want to maintain perfect feather quality on the bird. I mean, if a falconer, if a, a falconer's bird bends a feather, then the falconer basically, you know, goes into a state of depression and cries uh, because <laughs> they, you know, the bird broke a feather and, and uh, it's, you know, you know, it's a sort of shameful sort of thing to have happen. So um, you have to keep them leashed. And so, you know, through sort of a food training, uh, that's the first sort of step of the manning. You have to get them to accept uh, taking a food tidbit. Uh, and then they have to be exposed to, you know, the sights and the sounds of, of uh, the environment they're in and then transportation and what have you. Uh, traditional falconers uh, have done things, uh, a variety of different sort of techniques. For example, they've done wake, which is a method that's real intensive, but you basically hold the falcon on the glove uh, for hours upon end. Uh, eventually, the, the bird becomes fatigued uh, because it's deprived of sleep and then becomes sort of, you know, uh, accustomed to being handled that away. Uh, I don't do that. Uh, here, you still hear people trying to do that. Uh, another more modern technique is uh, sort of a strobe uh, approach. Uh, you know, because of the flashing light, the bird tends to remain calm on the glove. Uh, so I've, they've used those sorts of techniques. Um, uh, I, I know traditional falconers in the Middle East will do uh, a technique where what we call it on the bird head, which blocks their vision. And uh, they will start off with a hood with a, a small hole uh, over the eye. So a little bit of light comes in and then uh, over a, a period of a few days, they enlarge the hole. And then pretty soon it's like there's no hood whatsoever on the bird, but the, there was a gradual sort of habituation or desensitization sort of a process. Um, uh, and, uh, and then there's a, even uh, another example where uh, I know they do this in Pakistan, they'll take a, a freshly trapped hawk and tie it to a, a perch or kind of a, uh, a bench. And then they put the bench out on a public street and uh, bird basically has no uh, choice, but to sort of, you know, be exposed to, you know, dozens of people and, and things going on around it. And, uh, you know, it's basically sort of a flooding procedure mm -hmm. yeah, just so. to try to escape. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, you're describing some techniques that really range as far as yeah. welfare considered. So, um, you know, fear free is a big movement. And when you're talking about pain animals and veterinary mm. work and all that, I'm like, oh, let's fear free. How the falcon world coming to terms with this? Is it, is there more of a movement to take on, you know, the process, like you were saying, sort of the desensitization process, which 
goes a little bit slower and I think mm. conceptually would be considered more, I don't know, bird friendly. Ethical. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think, um, you know, the, I, I say that, it, and of course, you know, I, I've worked with animals and work birds. I've been a falconer for 30 years and you know, I have a background in academia and I'm very um, interested in the minds of animals and the emo- objective emotional states of animals, as Jessica can tell you. And um, I often, uh, you know, favor sort of, uh, uh, you know, I guess what the best way is to, to describe this, a uh, sort of consideration of the emotional state of the animal over its need for food. Generally, what's going on here is there is a, um, a weight management, uh, which is what's happening. Uh, if the bird gets hungry enough, it will diminish its it's sort of, you know, it's yes. one of these sort of, uh, uh, um, you know, conflict of motivation, you know, uh, you know, and we've seen those types of studies that were done uh, in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, once they get hungry enough, then they are going to tolerate being handled. And, and that's the only thing on their mind is to, to receive the food. Um, but you know, I'll give you the example that I have with my new bird that I trapped this year, and which is completely different than what uh, most falconers are doing. But, um, I'm really not focusing so much on the weight management. And I don't recommend this for the beginner. If, if a beginner tried this, they would probably lose the bird. Um, but, but I focus in on the sort of maintaining the emotional well-being or, or wellness of the bird. And then, you know, micromanaging the uh, the fear. If there's anything that the bird reacts negatively to, you know, I back away. Um, I, I try to don't handle it in any way that would uh, disturb it. Um, and so uh, I'm not relying so much on food. Food to handle the bird. Uh, I'm I'm trying to accept that that it's you know emotional being and that I need to you know create a really important sort of uh, emotional bond. I mean, this is sort of anthropomorphic, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on, you know, what is it, you know, the positive affect as much as I can and minimizing anything that would be negative. But that's, that takes uh, a lot of experience. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm able to accomplish a lot more with the bird that way, I find, than relying on. on but, you know, uh, falconry, traditionally, you have to have a bird that's at what we call flying weight and for it to engage the hunting behavior. I mean, you know, we want to catch game and the birds have to be hungry and motivated to uh, pursue quarry. So you just can't have a, a pet bird, you know, out there sitting around. It's not going to do anything. They have keen to go uh, hunt and kill. So that's the object. But, you know, if you can say, hey, look, bird, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to manage you to a point where you're extremely hungry. Uh, but, you know, we have a, a good relation and uh, I, I make sure that you're sort of, uh, you know, not experiencing any sort of fear or negative negative uh experiences that's the, the biggest problem you know if you think about it when you release a bird it's free to go and it's also free to hunt on its own and so if you have uh your relationship with the bird you know by minimizing any sort of negative encounters then it you know it's just another one of these sort of things that you know then the research would show you know these sort of uh, motivational conflicts you don't have to have as much uh hunger motivation if the fear is lower is is lower right so the fear of like yeah. a receiving electric shock versus uh, the magnitude of, of the uh, reward size, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off there. And so I spend a lot of time um, trying to keep the bird at its doable weight with the, the maximum positive effect. And uh, that's that's my philosophy. It's not everybody's philosophy, but, uh, I think you know. That's, that sounds similar 
to something I heard Steve Martin, the bird trainer, uh, mm-hmm. talking about. It, and I thought that you know, I think it makes total sense that an animal that is very capable of surviving so and is free to go and do whatever it wants to do, you know, how are you going to override all that, have them continue being a part of your relationship and a part of this sort of dynamic, hopefully fun type yeah, of interaction uh, for the animal? Well, Steve Martin is a falconer. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's... It's interesting how a lot of these professional bird trainers, um, you know, have a falconry background or people they've trained, you know, to, you know, do say free flight shows, you know, Steve Martin's trained a lot of people over the years. And so they get the falconry knowledge sort of secondhand. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's a sort of a, a movement, you know, out there and there's different sorts of ways of, of, uh, of uh, approaching it. You know, one of the things is, is that technology has helped. Um, we have, you know, GPS systems now that can track the the uh, falcons for us and so it, you know if you think about you know how falconry was conducted hundreds of years ago many birds were lost uh and they wanted to have a little more troll over the over the the birds prey and 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 so they kept them close to them uh you know we can let our birds go uh you know a couple of thousand feet up in the air i mean they don't do that every time but you know they we try to get with the peregrines as much height as they as can for stylistic reasons but we're not petrified we're going to lose it you know uh because we've got you know technology to help track the bird down and and uh but you know over the years i realized that you now if you if you do your training right even if you don't see the bird the bird's gonna come back eventually even though it may disappear it may take a you know, a five mile uh you know ring around the field and you wouldn't see it but you know if you stay put a lot of times they'll they'll show back up you know they have exploration on their own of course that's not necessarily efficient falconry you want to uh, <laughs> well you did say you get, were bird watching so <laughs> yeah i mean uh it, you have to let let things unfold and that's the biggest problem when i've had with my apprentices and so forth is is they go into panic oh my god the bird's migrating or something like that and say no just <laughs> calm down it's all going to work out you know and it, it just takes years of experience uh to establish but they tell me i'm very zen like uh you know that's my reputation because um you know i just have certain advantages of, of you know having uh you know learned about animal cognition and you know interested in, in uh, animal motivation and, and things like that uh, you know, I trust, uh, I trust my knowledge. I trust the training and, uh, it generally, it, you know, it generally works out. Not that things don't go wrong, but, um, uh, that's, you know, I see that I've been around with a few people, for example, um, I had a, a situation where my bird and my dog went off hunting together and <laughs> disappeared for 20 minutes in a gigantic Milo field in Kansas. And, uh, the people I was with were like, Oh my God, you've lost your dog and your bird. And I'm like going, well, let's just wait, see what happens. And then about 20 minutes later, they, you know, they both show back up, you know, at the truck and, and uh, they're going, well, we didn't need you for that hunt. And yeah. we did it all. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, living through those sorts of things. Yeah. And I'm education. also curious with, um, with something this complicated and with bringing a new bird on almost every year, do, do people in this field ever have like behavior problems with their bird? Like, do they need you to solve acute issues? Um, well, yeah, they have a lot of behavior problems. Um, uh, things can go, uh, you know, the the weight management can be an issue. Um, aggression can be an issue. Uh, if and I haven't really broached this this topic, but you know there are instances where people take what we call an IS, which is a, a young, you know, they're a traditional species, and they take them, and they kind of get what we call misimprinted or dual imprinted, and that creates a whole lot of behavior problems uh, if you aren't very very careful doing that. And so there's volumes written on on birds of prey that have screaming problems and aggression problems. Um, 
Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the current one that I'm dealing with is, is a mistake that I made. Uh, I have a, an imprint bird that I took in the wild. And uh, when I trained her to fly, I basically took her out the field and let her sit on my truck. And she would take short jaunts like any sort of fledgling bird would do. And, you know, she might see a grasshopper or a butterfly go by and she'd go chase it and then come back to the truck, just making short forays out there. Well, at the same time I was doing that, I let one of my dogs, uh, an English setter, run the field. And she decided that it was fun to chase the dog and uh at the time i went oh they're getting along and then uh when she started getting serious about hunting uh she wouldn't accept that dog in the field so i had to switch from my english setter when i hunt her to i have a german short hair and so lo and behold she has no aggression toward it but she doesn't accept the english setter so you know i kind of learned a little bit of a lesson there uh you know they can develop you know developmental issues can you know arise and, and cause problems um, one of the other things is hooding. Uh, sometimes you have to be careful how you teach them to take the hood, which is a, a benefit uh, to have a bird that can be hooded. And so you have to be careful about that. They get sometimes hood shot, you know, push it on too hard or too fast. Uh, you know, they, they become reluctant. I imagine just like, a, you know, any, any animal, a horse or a cat or a dog, whatever, they may not want to accept it any sort of restriction. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other things that they may do. Uh, yeah. Usually it all boils back down to something the uh, falconer did. And uh, mm -hmm. luckily they're they're pretty malleable. If you go back and sort of redo things the correct way, uh, the behavior problems. But uh, the beauty is, is that the bird doesn't work out. It's, it's a wild trap bird. You let it go and you're done. <laughs> Start over and don't make that same mistake. So you know, I've had lots of interesting conversations with people about like, what do you do? Doing, you know, one of the ones I had, uh, you know, I'm digressing a little bit, but uh, one technique that's very popular in um, the Arabian countries is they take a bird that's wild trapped and they pet it or they handle it and they touch it constant. And, uh, you know, I, I ask people that, and some people emulate that and I go, you know, the bird is wild and you're touching it and it's it's hissing at you and, and showing that it doesn't like that. I said, you know, are you sensitizing it or are you habituating it? And, you know, people don't know, falconers don't know, they don't have they just have methods and traditions that they follow they don't understand the, the right the behavioral principles behind it and so uh, i said you know what i do is i don't want it to hiss or be angry at all ever you know the magnitude of the stimulus you know uh of constant petting and touching and making it upset will will sensitize you know you're not habituating it you're sensitized and they of course they go well this is the way we've always done it and i go okay you know <laughs> to each his own and i just move on so i just try to point things out to folks as i can so i think you know that kind of right again we're getting that more welfare component of, of everything and with a sport that this old you know I, I assume it's very similar to the horse world where you know this is what's been done this is how we have lived and worked with these animals mm -hmm. um, you know your new fancy newfangled whatever isn't going to hold up four thousand tradition yeah um, so I think I think you are in a unique position because you're the president of this very very large organization and not only that but your background and your understanding of animal cognition and welfare principles and behavior, I think makes it very unique to be able to impact probably a bigger audience than, you know, your average falconer that's kind of just starting in the field. Do you, do you find that there's slow change, some change, or is it just depends on who um, you run into? Yeah, well, we have a, uh, as part of our club, we have a, a journal, uh, a public, a, a quarterly publication. So, you know, falconry is something that you can't do on your own. You can't just say, hey, I found a baby 
Hungry Hawk, and uh, I'm now going to be a successful falconer, right? It's just not going to happen. It's just too involved, and yeah. you have to learn from others. So, I mean, that's what they we try to do is we have this apprenticeship program to minimize horrible blunders that can that can uh, uh, that can happen, and uh, uh, and then we share a lot of our knowledge through you know publications, and so you know that's why we're the apprentices are tested, you know, tested on concepts of husbandry and field craft and and uh, bird identification and health and welfare and uh, and things like that. So there's uh, and of course you know laws and regulations. So I think falconry does a pretty good job. Now we're just talking about the United States. Uh, there are. If you look at Great Britain, for example, I think they're, I don't know what the population of, of Great Britain is, but I'm sure there's well over 10,000 falconers in, uh, in England, and they don't have an apprentice system. You can just go buy a bird, right? And then it can suffer tremendously uh, because it's not handled right, it's not fed right, not obtained right, not, and never experiences hunting. There's no reason in the world to have a bird of prey unless you're hunting it and flying it for free. Okay. I mean, you see this app, yeah. this Harry Potter, you know, mentality. And that's that's so taboo in the in the falconry community here in the United States that you know we shun any sort of pet keeping or abuse of the animal. There have been situations where I have delicately suggested somebody and you know been successful. You know, if I hadn't been president of the club, it probably I would have probably told to you know go take a hike. But I would say, you know, I see you're having difficulty. I will intervene and uh, and you know get the bird going right for you. You know, and and you know straighten out some of the behavioral issues and, and, and get it into a situation where, you know, it, you'll have a better chance of success and, uh, and then like basically grab the bird and taken it home and, and, you know, <laughs> done all the remedial work I could on it and then return the bird back to them and, and, uh, get them going and try to give them more suggestion, you know, about the best way to handle it. You know, there's a, a bit of an issue. Um, you know, there's each species of bird is ranges in its difficulty and its needs and, and, uh, and things like that. And so, uh, sometimes people want to start off. I'm sure it's the same way in, in a lot of stuff that, you know, you need to start off with the easy bird, uh, you know, the, the hardy bird, you know, the red tail. You don't need to start off, you know, North American goshawk that might jump on your face and, uh, and you know, cause all kinds of havoc, you know. So, you know, there's this idea about a hierarchy, you know, you start off and gradually as your skills improve, you can, you know, take on more uh, challenging uh, species to handle and what have you. So, you know, there's a lot of self-policing education and dealing with problems. Problems. I mean, we I get these things all the time. It's like, hey, what do I do? How do I do this? Uh, you know, what's the best way to solve that? And of course, there's competing ideas and, and what have you on, on how to solve a problem. There's probably not just one solution to, to anything. Uh, but, uh, you know, we do a pretty good job of, of helping each other out. And, and, you know, it's just such an involved activity that uh, and you just don't stick with it. You know, you know, that's why the apprenticeship program is there. If you don't succeed, you can get out of it, you know, and you had a red tail, you can release it. And you go, you know, this one for me, I don't have the time and dedication to do it. And that happens with the person. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, you know, it's kind of self-police and we weed out stuff. And this was all my intention. We want to maintain a, uh, a good public image. And, and you know, Falconers, on, on, for the most part, been very beneficial. Uh, our relationship, for example, with the Texas Parks and Wildlife, phenomenal. They, the, you know, we're the go-to group uh, because, you know, Parks and Wildlife, they don't have the same expertise. And so if there's ever an issue, they can, let's call our Falconer friends and, and they'll, they'll, they'll help us out. And so, you know, uh, you know, Falconry overall is just sort of phenomenal in, in uh, the, the experience and the knowledge 
and uh, uh, you know the care of the animal and the training of the animal. If, if you're a good falconer, you're a very good uh, animal trainer and a behaviorist. You have to have that kind of knowledge. You know, you have to have the knowledge of the animal. You have to have knowledge of the quarry and and uh, together, right? So it's combined. So it encompasses quite a bit to be a successful falconer. So Scott, yeah, I want to so- follow up on that. The the thing that I want to ask about is so I'm excited about all that you've described here and like the ability to apply behavior principles to like a new species and so the first thing that always comes to me is like wow this sounds so cool i'm gonna go do it um but i I have no doubt that it requires um, a time investment and good relationship skills and some finances so if there's someone out there who's like really pumped about the things that you're saying they're like i want to I want to learn more about behavior in the species and maybe join a club like this. Um, what sort of commitments are they looking at? Uh, you're talking about as far as expense or time yeah. or both? Like I, think, or, I think both. Both of those. Like, like, yeah, all that. <laughs> well... It, it, you know, it depends, I guess is the way you say it. Uh, you know, time-wise, uh, it's an addictive um, activity. Uh, and, you know, I added years to my, I'm sure I added a couple of years to my graduate studies because I went to do falconry. And, but it, it filled a gap in my knowledge that I wasn't necessarily getting, uh, you know, in a, a formal education, um, you know, a- application of that. So time-wise is probably the most critical. And and, uh, and of course, you have to have places to go and and hunt. So you have to develop that. So you're going to spend a lot of time. I would go every day during the entire hunting season if I can. I, I can't always do that, but um, it's that important to me. Um, so you're going to spend a lot of time. But it's not like, uh, you know, I get this question, you're like, how much time do I need? It's like, you're not going to realize you're spending time in it uh, because you're so passionate. And so it's, it's you know, it's something that you're going to uh, have no problem devoting to. If you don't want to go out in the field, uh, then, you know, it's not the sport, right? So you're just going to, you're going to figure that out right off the bat. So that's kind of a, a sign that somebody isn't uh, that experienced or doesn't have the right sort of mindset when it comes to, you know, if you're a person who likes to be outdoors and you like to hunt, and you love birds, you love animal behavior. You know, this is going to be a perfect thing for you. Um, Expense-wise, you have to have certain facilities. Um, and so, you know, that's going to be a few hundred dollars to build, you know, depending on if you can do the work yourself or whatever. You have to build, uh, you know, two specifications, uh, what we call a mew. And you have to have what we call a weathering area, uh, which is a, a safe area where the animal can, uh, you know, rest and take a bath and, and, uh, and you know, preen and what have you. Uh, Equipment-wise, you know, you may spend a few hundred dollars gauntlets now. I did falconry as a graduate student and UTA didn't pay anything hardly at all. And, uh, uh, you know, my, hawk catch enough game that it cannot feed itself um and so i was lucky there uh but you know i didn't have any fancy equipment you know, i went and got a, a welding glove instead of a hundred dollar gauntlet you know i had a you know kmart welding glove or something you know I mean, it cost 10 bucks and you know a, a two thousand dollar telemetry system i i flew the bird without telemetry you know and so i relied on training my training abilities to you know not lose the bird rather than technology. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, instead of having a fancy transportation box, I used a cardboard box that I, you know, so you can find a way to overcome the expense. Now, if you're a lawyer and you want all the nice stuff, you can spend thousands of dollars on it. But uh, uh, it's mostly the time, I think, and the dedication to But um, for me, as an animal behavior, uh, it's uh, an invaluable uh, experience in, you know, creating my, you know, knowledge and 
and understanding of, of animals, of nature. And uh, so it's it's priceless, right? Uh, to me, to have done the things that I've done, which, you know, I can go on for weeks to tell you all kinds of Cool yeah. things I've seen and done because of that. So I have a I have a couple of follow up questions there about some of the stuff you you mentioned. Um, you know, number one, you keep saying the the birds were hunting enough prey to themselves, which sounds very different than your typical hunting or hunter mindset, where you go out even if they're hunting with dogs, the dog is not supposed to consume the catch. But mm -hmm. it sounds like for the bird, part of the fun, you know, maybe you're just out there hunting so the bird can eat. And then my other question right. is, um, in the animal welfare world, the majority of people that you run into are either vegetarian or vegan, and so hunting might not be something that they're particularly comfortable with but the idea of training up this collaborative relationship sounds very appealing is there you know is there a fit for people who want to do falconry but don't hunt it? that's right is there a world for me <laughs> I, I feed my dogs meat though right well, I mean <laughs> yeah there's not a, there's not a, if you don't want to if you don't want to hunt don't be a falcon that's just a, but there there is a um because that's what's going to drive you because like i say there's no point in keeping a bird unless it's out there doing its natural behavior in the natural environment and eating the natural things. I mean, that is one of the things that, uh, why, you know, if you look at the typical bird of prey, you know, a falconer's bird, it's an outstanding physical shape because eating, you know, a, a commercial diet per se, it's eating you know, what it normally would eat. You know, it eats, if my falcon catches a duck, it's eating food that, you know, a, a piece of chicken neck or something like that couldn't compare to a wild duck in terms of its nutritional quality and, 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 and what have you. And so, um, and this, the, to be honest with you, you know, they have a, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what we talk about behavioral systems sort of analysis, you know, uh, these predators need to fulfill, uh, what do you call it, you know, their their biological programming. If yeah. they aren't hunting, they are not, you know, uh, experiencing, uh, you know, uh, a quality life. And that's my, right. Yeah. So, uh, and that's probably where, you know, you start getting some displacement activities, things like that, when they don't get to hunt, they don't to, uh, to kill and eat their wild quarry. Uh, I think Jessica might, you know, you might think back to, you know, uh, what happens when you have captive tigers that get to eat carcasses versus don't eat carcasses, they eat meatball, right. you know, what yeah. is, what's going on there, you know, uh, a meatball handed to them in a, in a pan, right? Yeah. And so, uh, uh, you know, the raptor out there hunting and flying free, and catching and eating this quarry is, is, is what makes the sport. Um, now, you know, if you, you know, have a different mindset, you know, I'm sure there's probably been someone out there that, you know, sort of uh, compartmental their attitudes or beliefs. Like you could do this, and you could take your bird hunting, but really you're taking bird to go and yeah. get an environment that no one could provide in house, right? Like yeah. so, by going out field and watch, helping all this happen, you're you're doing your part, but you don't necessarily need the bird to capture yeah. something, bring back you for you to have dinner. Although as a graduate student, you probably would have appreciated that. <laughs> Well, you know, you can do, there's people, I've known people, for example, that were, had a fascination with with, uh, with falconry, but didn't want to go through the process of becoming a legal falconer. And falconers are really nice. And, uh, you know, if you find somebody, say, hey, can I go out with you? They'll, you know, they'll take you out and you can learn about it, see it. And you don't have to, it's like being a grandparent, you know, you don't have to deal with the, the hassle of raising the kid if you're the grandparent, right? You can just go out and have fun, right? And so that might be the, you know, a particular sort of, you know, avenue somebody takes. Uh, you know, I want the, the club to grow and to explore and, and what have you, but, uh, uh, you know, with different
different types of members and what have you. But, uh, uh, you know, if you can compartmentalize, but, you know, you have to handle the, the carcasses and the food. And, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, sometimes you have to dispatch. Just, you know, this is the blood and guts of it all. Your um, falcon catches a duck and uh, it begins to kill the duck. Uh, but I find it to be more humane. I mean, they're going to eat this thing. You don't want them to eat it alive. So I find it more humane to dispatch the uh, the, the, uh, the quarry uh, mm -hmm. to, to short, you know, expedite the death of this animal so it can be then consumed, right? And so yeah. that could be pretty that could be pretty harsh for somebody to take a pair of scissors and snip the, <laughs> the, the spinal cord of a, of, a, of a duck. And so, I mean, that's the, the blood and guts of it all, but that's that's the reality of, of, uh, of, of nature and what have you. So, you know, I don't know what else to, mm -hmm. how else no, to that's describe. That's a good point. No, I think uh, that's something to keep in mind. I mean, that, that's even for, even if you're having domestic pet ownership, like people who own snakes, you have to think, will you be able to feed this animal in your house? Right. Because snakes aren't going to eat pellets. They're going to eat live or frozen yeah. animals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is a that is a part of it. But um, Yeah, that's part, that's part of it. And it's not for everybody. You know, there's other ways of experiencing, you know, like I say, in rehab, and, uh, you know, bird watching and, and things like that. And, you know, like I say, a lot of, we have a lot of sort of kind of, you know, I guess uh, falconry fans. I don't know. They just go out. And, you know, maybe somebody has a family and they know they don't have the time, but they like to go out. I take them out, you know, two or three times a year and they, they get their their fix, so to speak, you know, hey, this was so much fun. I love seeing it. You know, we take the kids out, you know, and what have you, and uh, they get to, you know, experience the outdoors and nature and learn kind of what goes on, uh, you know, uh, you know, in that sort of environment where it's kind of, it's kind of rare for kids to, to do those sorts of things nowadays. I think hunting oh, yeah. in general is sort of dwindling. But I was going to say, okay. from a behaviorist point of view, I, I can't think of another version of interacting with animals that really requires you not only to have amazing understanding of welfare principles, but just humane handling technique, just interaction of natural systems. I mean, pulling together mm -hmm. ecology with with all of it. You know, I, I think that when I think about what you can do with animals that's out there, yeah. I, this is really an amazing field. And like you were saying, you know, Texas, well, I would the, say, the parks are... Yeah, I would... I would say that, you know, Falkyrie is probably the, the first, maybe not the first, I don't know, you know, who knows what happened in, in ancient history or whatever, but, you know, okay. it is an example of positive reinforcement. I mean, we only use, we don't use, you know, coercive control or negative control uh, on these raptors at all. It's all, you know, positive control and positive reinforcement to, to establish yeah. the, the the behavior. And, and so, you know, you, you know, I've seen people in the past go, you know, oh, naughty parrot, and they thump it. You know, you do that once with your bird of prey and it's going to say <laughs> see you later bye <laughs> i was thinking uh, as you were talking it is like it is like the scariest biggest recall that you could possibly train right i mean yeah, from four thousand. yeah away. You, you'll watch your bird go up into this you know uh you know, I've, you know one time i was with uh, another graduate student and uh, we went out on top of a, a sort of a hilly area and it happened to be a thermal and, and i watched my red tail at the time go up into a thermal and disappear thousands of feet up and uh you know I looked at my friend and, and I said, well, I guess we can trap another one next year. And, uh, you know, we well, just sat around the hill kind of waiting around for about 30 or 40 minutes thinking, you know, maybe something might happen. And then we walked back and there's my bird sitting on top of the car. <laughs> And you go, how did that happen? And, you know, that bird was watching us the whole time. And when it saw us walking back to the car, it says, well, I guess it's time for us to go. I'm going to head on back home. 
you know, it's um, just a fascinating, you know, endeavor. And there's, it's easier to learn about it now than it ever has been. It used to be very sort of secretive and, you know, the methodologies and the techniques and the founder community was very secretive. And so, you know, like with our, our club, you know, we're out on social media. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, Facebook groups and, and uh, you know, all kinds of organizations that, uh, that you can get involved in. So it's, it's, it's something that we're welcoming. And, uh, but we're still, you know, uh, cautious about, you know, promoting it for everybody. Right? Uh, and so it's set up to sort of through the apprentice program and sort of the requirements, the testing and equipment, whatever, to make people stop and think. We don't want to be like uh, other countries that don't have such uh, licensing procedures and, you know, people just go buy a bird. And then, uh, you know, and then it, it's like somebody says, oh, I love colorful parrots. I'm going to go get them a call. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, God, what did you know? Have you ever had a bird before? No. You know, it's so, okay, it's going to be a disaster. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and birds of prey are, you know, you know, legally protected. And so you have to, you know, keep that in mind. It's not, they're not pets and what have you. So yeah. we have to keep that mindset, you know, forefront in, in, in anyone that wants to do it. But uh, I've taken many, many people out and, uh, and, uh, shared my shared the experience which is you know, enough for many people it's like hey you want a horse yeah i'd love a horse i'd love to have a horse my dog and my falcon all at once but it's like uh you know if you have a horse you're gonna have to have some land you get a lot of money a lot of time you know so it's another one of those sorts of things you know yeah there's it's, no cheap way to yeah i would uh, no- i would do it you know i would have a horse i would have um yeah. my fountain and i would you know go out to west texas and you know pretend i was uh you know yeah. <laughs> duke of uh, duke of falcon or something uh, <laughs> past doing that uh, but then i would have to you know I, i'd have to be retired or independently wealthy and, and what, just, yeah. just can't do it feasibly um, but uh, now that's the kind of person i am i want to i want the, the full full experience yeah so jessica my thought is we'll definitely put up some links um to the the, the facebook pages and all the pages that scott's talking about scott is there anything else yeah if we we're going to put up links for, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, any other resources we're, that you can recommend that we should link to for like people who are interested in learning more well like we have the our website is texashawking.org and then there's uh the uh we call it national north american falconry uh, association um dot org except it's got like little hyphens in the in the in the uh between the letters so I, i'd have to maybe i can email you the link or something um but those are really good sites uh the peregrine fund is a good site um uh so we have a it's not officially our club but it's uh, it's run by uh, texas Falconers, but it's a Texas Falconry Apprentice, which is a, a user group that a lot of people uh, go to, uh, and uh, and uh, so it's it's sort of for people that are want to become an apprentice or thinking about falconry. So you know, any question is not frowned upon. You know, you can ask anything and, and, and learn about. It. Uh, the m- number one thing is to if they're really interested in it, is again gaining knowledge, and you're going to have to read extensively because remember you're going to be tested. So you need to uh, start gathering information and purchasing books. Uh, you may start off with, uh, uh, you know, checking a book out at the library or whatever else, but, uh, uh, you know, or, you know, maybe going on uh, eBay and looking up falconry books. There's a, some pretty good apprentice books. So those are things that we usually t- um, turn to first. Uh, and then the next thing they do is like, well, why don't you come out to one of our falconry meets? So you just don't, you know, you we ease them into it gradually, step by step. Start reading something so you, you know, kind of know what you're talking about at the beginning and and, uh, and get a better idea. And then you start seeing some birds and thinking about it and meeting other falconers and then start moving toward uh, or making the decision about, hey, I might want to, you know, get a license. Uh, 
uh, you know, there's a big thing about uh, who sponsors The Apprentice, right? And uh, uh, Jessica knows very well that, uh, you know, I was trained by a top uh, uh, falconer in the state and uh, an avian uh, veterinarian. So uh, that had a whole lot to do with my success in uh, in falconry. You know, who is the guy that teaches me? So it's almost like in academia, who's your, you know, mm-hmm. academic or can make a big difference on, on your success. So it takes a while. If you have this attitude, I'm going to be a falconer next week. It's just mm-hmm. you know, how about maybe in a couple of three years, you're going to, you're going to start down that path. So it's going to take a while to, to get into it. So, so those, those resources online and, uh, and reading are the first step. Okay, great. Great. So, um, so Jessica, I think I, I have to head out in a minute, but, and I think you answered all of our questions, Scott. I, I feel like we could chat with you for hours. Oh. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh, just the, the knowledge that you have and obviously the passion that you have for this sport. Um, and I think the ability that you have to bring people who are interested into behavior into the fold. I mean, just thank you so much for coming on the show. It just, it's delightful to hear about something I've, yeah, I've never learned about before and a new way to apply behavior principles to just a brand new species for me, obviously not for thousands of years and hundreds and maybe thousands of people, but but um, just very enlightening. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. I appreciated, uh, you know, taking the time and, and sharing with everyone and, and uh, uh, you know, my knowledge and expertise. And, and uh, you know, if someone picks up a book and reads about it or <laughs> looks at some videos, <laughs> and I think it's a great success. Yeah.